All right, what's up, guys? How you doing today? Good? Okay. Um, I wanted to show that video, one, because Shaq is hilarious, but uh, I, be, people don't always realize that they're in the presence of him, obviously. Like, they know, okay, this guy is a big dude, maybe he's good at playing, the one guy said, hey, maybe he's good at playing basketball, uh, but they didn't really have the full idea of who it actually was that they were with. And I, I wanted to do that because what we're going to be talking about today is a story where I, I really believe that uh, the disciples <laughs> started to, uh, wow, I don't know what happened to my voice, um, started to come into a much better understanding of who it actually was that they were with. You see, don't, don't get me wrong, when people were with Jesus, as we've seen this throughout the scriptures, we've been preaching through the gospel of Mark this summer, people definitely realized that they were with somebody who was special, right? Like, it's not every day that you see a guy that can cast out demons, not every day that you see a guy that can heal people, um, but I don't think that they understood just how special the guy was that they were actually with. And I think that this honestly mirrors a lot of what people think about Jesus today when I talk to people on the street. If you talk to the average person, they usually have something good to say about Jesus, the same way that a lot of people back then thought that there were a lot of interesting things or, or positive things that they could say about Jesus. Um, but as I talk to people and they have this general positive perception of who Jesus is, one of the things that I've noticed is the reason that there's generally a positive perception is because they kind of have this image of Jesus that they've created themselves that's palatable to them, right? What's important for us is who is the actual Jesus? Like, what, does the, what do the scriptures actually tell us about him? If we're going to get to know who he is, then there's no better place that we can go than the Bible, because this is an account that we have from the people that were with him the most, that knew him the best. And if Jesus is a real person, which he was, then that's the one that we want to get to know. And when we dive into who the real Jesus is, we see that he was really awesome, but he was also very controversial. There were some people that loved him, and there were some people that hated him. And we've seen that already in the Gospel of Mark. If you've been with us the last several weeks, we've seen how there have been some people that have loved Jesus, the crowds that are flocking to him, people that uh, are around him so much that he's not even able to eat, right? People that are cutting holes through roofs just to get to him. Yet we've also seen some people that really don't like Jesus, that, that are very, very skeptical about him. Some think that he's a wise and powerful prophet but of, from God, but others think that he's a fraud who is empowered by Satan. Now, one thing that all of these people can agree on, though, is at the very least, Jesus is interesting. Love him or hate him, something is always happening when he's around. And because of this, we get these massive crowds. This actually, as I've been restudying Mark uh, through this sermon series, that's one of the things that's just jumped out to me so much is just how big the crowds were that were following Jesus and how consistently they wanted to be around him. Last week when we were together, John uh, showed us a, a, another amazing thing Jesus did where he drove a bunch of demons, probably thousands of demons, out of this man into these pigs, right? And, and it was an amazing miracle that happened. We're going to be skipping ahead a little bit in the story today as we're starting to get to a, a clearer picture of who Jesus is. But I do want to fill you in on a little bit of what's happened from the time that Jesus drove out all of those demons to the story that we're going to be looking at today. 
And this is important because when you read your Bible, you always want to read it in context, right? So whenever you're looking at a passage, it's important for you to understand what has been going on before this, because that's going to inform your understanding of what you're reading right now. And so since Jesus drove out all those demons from the, and, and in, uh, put them into the pigs, there's a lot that's been happening. He's continued his ministry of teaching and healing and driving out demons. He uh, recently healed a woman that had a bleeding problem for 12 years. He even raised a little girl who had been dead for a short period of time. Uh, He went back to his hometown, and the people there actually didn't think that he was that special, though. They had seen him grow up. They were like, hey, isn't this that carpenter guy that we already know? And so he didn't actually do that much work that was there. After that, he went and he sent out his 12 apostles. And he sa- the scripture says that he gave them the authority to cast out demons and to perform works of healing. And so we see that he sends them out to go and preach, but they start doing some of the same things that Jesus was doing. This is really important, right? It's, now it's not just Jesus. Was, he wasn't the only one that was driving out demons. He wasn't the only one that was preaching. He wasn't the only one that was healing, but rather he's actually given that authority to his apostles and they go around and start doing that as well. Now, with all of this stuff, Jesus' reputation is growing a lot, right? There's crowds that are seeing this. More and more people are hearing about him. Now, even as his disciples go out with the authority that he's given them, his fame and his reputation continue to build and build and build. And it's during this time that we realize that John the Baptist has also been murdered. And if you don't remember who John the Baptist is, we were introduced to him earlier, but basically he was a prophet that was sent to prepare the way of Jesus, to get people's hearts ready for the coming of their Savior. And so John was constantly saying, hey, there's one coming, there's one coming after me who's so great and so holy, I'm not even worthy to pick up the the thong of his sandal. So John the Baptist was this preacher of righteousness, people would go out and listen to him. Well, he had actually been put in jail by King Herod, and uh, I won't get into the whole story, but essentially... Herod ended up beheading John the Baptist, and he starts to get scared that John the Baptist has actually risen from the dead, and that that's who this Jesus guy is that's going around doing all these amazing things, because he says, nobody could be doing this kind of stuff unless it was John that's risen from the dead. So there's all sorts of rumors that start to circulate about who Jesus is. Is he John the Baptist raised from the dead? Is he some other prophet from of old? Is this Elijah that's come back? People don't really know. They're trying to figure out who he is. They know that he's special right? Kind of like that, that guy in the, the lift commercial, like he saw Shaq, he said, this guy looks like he could play basketball, but they, they really aren't quite sure just who he actually is. Is this a guy that could just dominate games at the rec center, or is this a guy that could dominate the NBA, right? With Jesus, is this guy just another prophet? Is, is he someone who's able to do a lot of really cool things, or is this guy something more? And that's what we're going to get more insight into today. Um, But there's three important things I want you to remember before we dive into the main text for today, which is first just that, as I already talked about this, the fame and the reputation of Jesus is growing and spreading throughout the land. And that, two, there are a ton of different theories circulating about who Jesus is. And third, that his apostles are now doing some of the same works that Jesus has done up to this point, primarily preaching, healing, and driving out demons. Um, So with that being said, let's pray, and then we'll dive into the main text we're going to be in today. God, we love you, and we just thank you so much for uh, who you are. I thank you that you're here with us. I thank you that we can worship you. I thank you that you have uh, revealed to us who you are, Lord, that your scripture speaks clearly to who you are, 
that it speaks clearly to who Jesus is, God. And I pray that uh, just as the event that we're looking at today gave the disciples a lot more insight about who you are, God, I pray that as we dive into this text today, that we would be people that receive a lot more insight about who you are. God, magnify your name here today. In our hearts, stir up worship for you that you're so worthy of. We love you, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, and uh, I'm going to be starting in verse 30. At this point, the apostles have just returned from that mission trip, essentially, that Jesus sent them out on, right? He gives them a power and authority to go heal and cast out demons. They're coming back, and they're giving him this report. We see this in Mark 6, 30 to 32. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. All right, so they've come back, and we're at that same issue that we've been in for a while. Crowds are constantly uh, just, just smothering them to the point where they can't even eat, right? We've seen this as a recurring theme. So Jesus says, guys, we need to get away. You've just done a ton of work. They've done a ton of ministry. I'm sure they've got a lot of things they want to tell Jesus about. Let's go get away to be in a secluded place. So verse 33 then says, the people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. These crowds are relentless in their pursuit of Jesus and his apostles, right? He says, let us get away to a secluded place. Somehow they figure out what this place is, and they go run faster than the boat can even go so that they can intercept them when they get there. Now, if you put yourself in this situation, what would you do, right? Like, you, you have been doing all sorts of ministry. You're tired, you just want to spend some, some time away. Even Jesus has said, hey, it's a good time for us to get away. And my goodness, as soon as your boat gets to the shore where you're trying to go, what's there? These crowds that will never give you a break. I, I know I would probably be annoyed with that, right? Like, I'm a big people person. I love to be around them. I love ministering to others. But at some point, you need some rest. Well, let's see how Jesus reacts. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. All right, of all the emotions that Jesus could have felt in this situation, being annoyed or angry or, or whatever, what is the main thing that he feels? Compassion. That's what the scripture writers show us, is that in, in the midst of all of this fatigue, right? Like, yeah, Jesus was God, but he was God in the flesh. Like, he still had a body, like you and I, that needed to eat and that needed to sleep, that needed some space. And yet, he feels compassion on this crowd that's run him down. And so he goes and he starts to teach them. And remember, they're out in the middle of nowhere. Jesus wanted to take them out to a secluded place. So as he's teaching them, he's teaching them. Finally, his disciples are like, hey, Jesus, it's getting late. There's nowhere to eat out here. They don't have any McDonald's or anything in this area. You need to, like, go send these people away to go get some food to eat. And Jesus is like, you give them something to eat. And they're kind of like, what? <laughs> like, how, how are we supposed to do that? And he's like, what do you have? And I said, well, we've got uh, five loaves of bread and two fish. It's like, okay, bring them here. So Jesus takes this food that they have. And he blesses it, and he multiplies it, he gives it to them to hand out, 
And sure enough, these five loaves and two fish end up feeding the crowd. Now, when I say crowd, we're talking a crowd, all right? The, the scripture says that there were 5,000 men there. And it, I think it's in Matthew's gospel, it says 5,000 men besides women and children. So it's even a larger crowd than that. But 5,000 is still impressive enough for me. So we'll just work off that number. 5,000 people Jesus feeds out of a few loaves of bread and a couple fish. This is obviously something that is totally astounding. It's an awesome miracle. Jesus has fed them both physically and spiritually, right? He's taught them. They're hungry for his teaching. And now he's even fed them with this bread and this fish that he's multiplied. Now, right after this meal, Jesus is for real about finally getting his disciples some rest. So it says this right after he gets done with the feeding. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. All right, this time Jesus was making sure that they got away, right? So he kind of throws a block. He's like, all right, you guys get into the boat. I'll catch up with you. I'm going to make sure that this crowd gets dispersed and sent away. I guess they must have made plans to meet back up at Bethsaida at some point. And Jesus finally disperses this crowd. And so they go, and what does Jesus go off to do? He goes off to pray. You see, it wasn't just the disciples that needed time to be able to get away from the crowds and rest. Jesus was hungry for this time to be able to get away and to pray as well. I always find it interesting how Jesus makes so much time and such effort in his life to get away to pray, right? Like, doesn't that almost strike you as being strange when you realize this is God in the flesh, right? Like, we believe in a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So yes, the Son and the Father are distinct, but at the same time, we would say that they are one. How can you have any closer fellowship? It's almost like, why does Jesus need, need to pray, and the scripture doesn't tell us the answer for why Jesus goes off to do this so often. It doesn't tell us directly here in this passage. But I can at least tell you that it certainly wasn't because Jesus was looking for something to do, right? Like, there was plenty of work that Jesus had on his hands, so much so that the crowds weren't even letting him eat. Sometimes we think that we would pray if we just had more time, right? It's like, man, I'm really, really busy. If only I had more time then I would make sure to, to, to pray, but I just can't find the time in my schedule. Well, Jesus is busier than you. I guarantee there were more needs that he came across, more people that needed his services. But instead, he got away, I think, because he needed to make sure that he was perfectly aligned with the Father's will. Look at some of these statements that Jesus would make at other times in his ministry. John 5, 19. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. It says later in John 5.30, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus was totally in lockstep with the Father. Right? Like, it, it, what an amazing testimony of how to live life. He said, I don't do anything on my own initiative. As the Father tells me, that's what I do. And so I, I don't find it surprising anymore to see that Jesus does get off into solitary places to go and make sure that he's spending time with the Father, hearing him clearly, processing his will, seeking his will, because that's exactly where the Son wants to be. What good is it to do a bunch of work if it's not the right work? 
right? Like, Jesus had no shortage of good things that he could have done. There were so many people that he could have healed. There were so many demons he could have cast out. So many people he could have preached to. But he had a specific mission. And he knew that he needed to be perfectly in line with the Father's will if he wanted to fulfill that. And when I look at my life, there are so many good things I could do. There's so many different ways I can spend my time. Honestly, for many of you that are in college, I think one of the biggest skills that you have to learn as a college student is how to discern to, how to use your time. Because there's so many great opportunities available to you. There's so many great opportunities you have that you can pursue after college as you're thinking about a career. There's so many options. And if we aren't taking time to pray and to hear God and to be in line with his will, then I think that we can spend a lot of time spinning our wheels. And so if we don't take any time to listen to the Father, how is it that we can know that we're walking in line with what he wants us to do? It seems to me that having a ton of demands in our time should actually drive us to pray more, not less. Because we must have direction to know how to use what precious little time it is that we have. You see, Jesus' life was highly active, but it was also intentionally restful. And what a great example for us to follow as his people we see that he was highly active. We should have a lot going on as Christians, right? Just like Jesus had a ton of work to do, we have a ton of work to do, right? What's the commission that he gave us? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. There's a lot of people in this world, over 7 billion. And, and, and we're called to go and make disciples of all nations. That is a monstrosity of a task. We should be people that are active, that are working hard, that are pouring ourselves out, laboring for the sake of the gospel. Look at the, the Apostle Paul. He's such a great example to us in this. In Acts 20, he's saying goodbye to these elders at Ephesus that, that he had invested so much time in. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. You look at Paul's life, he says, guys, I'm innocent. I, I have done what God has called me to do. Night and day, I was preaching God's gospel to you. And man, I want to be able to look at my life whenever it's my time to go, it's winding down, whatever. I want to be able to look back at my life and say, yes, night and day, I was preaching the gospel to people. I was investing in people to try and help make disciples the way that Jesus called me to. We've seen Jesus model this a ton with all the work that he's doing, the way that even though I'm sure he wanted to rest when he got out of the boat, he still went and taught that crowd of 5,000 and fed them. Yet as highly active as his life was, we saw that it was also intentionally restful. And we see this in the times that he would take to get away to pray, and it's not just here. Zach preached a sermon earlier this year where it was the same kind of thing in Mark 1, where Jesus would get away to pray. This rest involves coming and realigning yourself just simply with, with the Father. So what's this balance look like in your life as you evaluate your life, right? Which of these areas do you need to grow in? Do you need to grow in activity? Maybe you're someone that says, hey, I, I'm actually kind of not doing much with my life right now. Like, I'm not investing in people. I'm not really preaching the gospel. I'm not really making disciples. I'm not being very active in the commission that Jesus gave me. Well, in that sense, you probably need to grow in some of the, the activity part, that you could kind of mirror the Apostle Paul a little bit more, that you would work day, day and night to make disciples. 
Maybe you just need to change the kind of activity that you're doing. I know a lot of you might be people that are very, very busy. It's easy to get busy in our society. There's so many options. But are they the right things that you're investing your time in? Maybe you need to take some time to be able to get away and be with the Father and do an assessment of like, Lord, I know that I'm busy. I know my time is full, but am I investing it the way that you want me to? Or maybe you need to grow in intentional restfulness. Maybe you are doing a ton and you're doing a lot of really, really great ministry, but you need to realize that God also values your rest and that you need to give yourself the permission to sometimes be able to step away from the crowds and to go and align yourself with the Father in prayer. So we see that the disciples are sent away. They're out by themselves on the boat as Jesus is up on the mountain praying. And this is what's going to bring us to the very, very important encounter that I want to talk about today. So picking back up in Mark chapter 6, verse 47, we see this. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. All right, can you imagine being one of the disciples in this story? I just want to kind of retell this, put you into their shoes. I'm going to mix in a little bit of information from what we have in the other gospel accounts as well. But just, just think about being one of them. So they're out, you're out there. It's the middle of the night. You are tired. We've already established that, right? Like, not only, you just got back from this mission trip where you were driving out demons, where you were healing people, where you were preaching. Uh, now you just had to go and help feed all these 5,000 people. You were the ones Jesus was using to distribute the bread. And he sent you off in this boat, and sure enough, it's bad weather tonight. And you've been rowing and rowing and rowing. It's the middle of the night. It's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. I don't know about you, but that's not how I was hoping to spend my night rowing in the dark on a, on a choppy sea. But this is where you find yourself. Your hands are, are ripped up. You're tired. You're paddling as hard as you can. You just want to make it to shore, but you can't even necessarily see where that is right now. And then all of a sudden you look out and you see a figure walking on the water. And you're thinking, all right, I'm tired. I'm hallucinating. It's the middle of the night. But then you see that your friend next to you sees the same figure. And so does the other guy. And as a matter of fact, there's 12 of you in this boat, and every single one of you sees this figure walking on the sea, and you're like, maybe this isn't a hallucination. Like, how are we all seeing this same thing? And so you squint, you look a little bit more, and you realize, oh, there, yeah, that, that's real. Like, I'm not hallucinating. And now all of a sudden, you start to become terrified. Is that a ghost? Remember, you've just been through a bunch of weird stuff. You were literally on a trip where you were just casting out demons right? Like you've seen evil spirits coming out of people, and now all of a sudden you see this, this thing that appears to you to be a ghost walking on the sea, and your, your best friend, Jesus, the one that gave you the power to do that, uh, he's not with you right now. Are these things coming to get revenge on you? Is this some sort of an evil spirit that's coming to hurt you? I don't, whatever it is, you don't know. You are terrified as you look out and see this. And all of a sudden, 
the creature that you see out there on the sea speaks. He says, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. You take a deep breath. Maybe this isn't a ghost. Whatever it is, is at least claiming that it's Jesus. You're not sure. It's dark. It's windy. You still can't really tell, so you kind of squint a little bit more, and then your friend Peter, who's kind of the leader of the group, uh, isn't so sure either. So he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water. And so the figure says, come. So Peter gets out of the boat, steps out on the water, and he actually starts to walk on it. He gets in a few steps. He starts walking out towards us. You're thinking, oh, sweet. Like, maybe this, this really is Jesus. But as Peter looks around and he starts to see all the wind and the waves, he gets scared and he starts to sink down into the water. And he cries out for Jesus to save him. And Jesus reaches his hand down, picks him up, and brings him back onto the boat. And as they both get onto the boat, the storm dies down. It calms. And actually, all of a sudden, you're at the shore. You find that your journey is over. And you have no idea how to process what just happened to you. What in the world is going on? I've seen this guy heal people. I've seen this guy drive out demons. I even saw him do an amazing thing with the bread. But walking on water? What? I, uh, no one has done anything like this before. I haven't read about a prophet doing anything like this. This is something that's totally new. And you're saying, who is this guy? who is this? You know it's Jesus, but like, who is Jesus? The more time you spend with him, the more he continues to blow your mind. And you start to realize that this guy is greater than you were even giving him credit for before. You know, you've heard the rumors that are circulating about him, that he's some other prophet, that maybe he was Elijah. Herod thinks that he's John the Baptist that's risen from the dead, but you're hearing that stuff, you're saying, no, that's shooting too low. Whoever this guy is, he's something even more. You see, the prophets pointed people to God. They pointed people back to God so that, he would worship, that they would worship him. But you're starting to realize this guy's more than just a prophet. The prophets pointed people to the one to worship, but this one seems like the one that I actually should worship. Like, could this actually be God himself? The one that's worthy of your worship. And the, your eyes are start, starting to be open to this. And Matthew ends this story in his gospel by saying this in Matthew 14, And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. You see, at this point, Jesus is revealing more and more of who he actually is. This was a powerful experience for the disciples. We stand 2,000 years later where we have a clear testimony to who Jesus is, of uh, seeing his death and his resurrection. But remember, the disciples are still learning. They're still getting to know who this guy actually is. And they didn't seem to fully understand who he was. And I'm not even saying they fully understand at this point, but I do think that this was a turning point for them that helped them realize that Jesus was something much more than just another great prophet. You see, they should have come to realize this when he fed the 5,000, right? That was a pretty extraordinary miracle as well. But Mark says at the end of the account, he says, then when he got into the boat with them, the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. So essentially what Mark is saying is they shouldn't have even been astonished about this. They should have noticed this when he fed the 5,000, but their hearts were so hard at that time they didn't realize it. 
But now they're astonished again, realizing this actually is, this is someone super special. As Matthew's account records, they worship him and say that he's the son of God. And so I ask you, have you had an experience where you've come to realize that Jesus is more than what you previously thought that he was? You may not have a super intense experience the way that the apostles did on the boat that night. But there has to come a point in your life where you realize that Jesus is more than just a prophet, that he's more than just a good teacher, that he's more than just a nice guy, that he's more than a historical figure. You have to come to a point where you realize that he is God's son and that he is worthy of your worship. You see, I grew up in church, and I, I really can't remember a time in my life where I didn't go to church. I was in Sunday school. I had, like, you used to get, like, medals for attendance in Sunday school. I was, like, a four-star general. I, you know, it was, like, it was just, that, that, that was super familiar to me, hearing the name of Jesus from the time that I was a little kid. And, and I, I would sing songs about him, learn stories about him. I was introduced to him as being someone who is loving, compassionate, powerful. This is how I was brought up. But there had to come a day for me, and there did come a day for me, when it clicked that Jesus is more than just an awesome guy. And honestly, the, the biggest thing that helped compel me to that point was a conversation I had with my youth pastor where he started to help awaken in me this idea that Jesus is, is always around, right? Like, like he started to get me thinking about the fact that Jesus isn't just a relic of the past, but he's someone, he is God, he's living and active, and he, he's, he's around us. And it compelled me to read my Bible more. <clears throat> I started pouring uh, myself into the scriptures. And as I did this, I came to realize more and more of who Jesus really is. I started to develop a true love and devotion for who Jesus is. I began to see that he's totally worthy of my worship. And for me, this, was, this primarily came through time alone in my room with my Bible, reading the word of God, and letting his spirit reveal to me just who Jesus actually is. This only continued to grow more as I continued to pursue him more and got involved in, in a vibrant church community where I got to see how the Lord was working in the lives of my friends. As I saw him transforming people, I started to see, yeah, Jesus is more than just a nice guy that we can sing songs about, about how he loves us. He's more than that. You know, as Jesus was going around ministering to people, they had great things to say about him, as I was saying earlier. Even after he fed the 5,000 in John's account, we, we, they recognized someone as special. It says this in John 6, 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. They knew something was special about this guy, but they needed to get even further than that. Today, there's a lot of people that have good things to say about Jesus. I hear consistently that he is a good teacher. And that, that doesn't matter. Christian, non-Christian, almost anybody will tell you that Jesus is a good teacher. I heard a Buddhist monk that I was talking to on campus uh, that told me that he was a fully in, enlightened soul, um, someone that was worthy of being discipled by and, and emulating his life. I uh, know Muslims who consider him to be a prophet, a powerful prophet. And this is all high praise, but, but is this enough, or is Jesus something more? And he is more. Look at how he's described in the Bible. Remember, this is the real Jesus. He's more than a prophet. Look at what Hebrews 1 says about him. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, 
through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. You see, this is how, I, I love the writer of Hebrews comes out, guns blazing. This is who Jesus is. He's better than the prophets, right? There, there, there was a time where God spoke to us through the prophets. He spoke to us in something even better here in these last days, his own son. He's better than the angels. He's inherited a name that is greater than theirs. He is God. He says he's the exact representation of his being, that the world was made through him. He's letting us know in no uncertain terms, Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just an angel. He is God. <clears throat> he is heir of all things, and he is worthy of our worship. So we know now what the Bible says about who Jesus is. The question is, what do you say? Like, who, who do you say that he is? Your answer to this question is absolutely imperative. For one, it will affect eternity. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. You see, there is one savior of the world, and it's Jesus. You want eternal life? There's one way. It's that you believe in God's only son. Jesus. You see, this, this is so important because we were stuck in our sin and separated from God, right? Like God is perfectly holy. He hates sin, but he loves people. And guess what? We are people that were covered in sin, and so our sin separated us from him. And Jesus in his great love came and took on flesh, God in the flesh, amazing as this is, right? No wonder it takes the disciples a while to get this. But he walks among us, and he lives a perfect life. He, he does everything that God has called us to do that we failed so miserably at. He fulfills to perfection. And in that Hebrews passage, it says that he made purification for our sins. And what he did in that was going to the cross where he was murdered. He died. He was slaughtered like a lamb. Right? Even in the, in, uh, the Hebrews passage, he's writing to these people with this Jewish mind that knew about all these Old Testament sacrifices where animals would have to be killed and their blood was poured out and it made you pure. And what he's saying is Jesus is ultimately the one that has made purification for our sins. When he died on that cross, his blood was poured out and his blood cleans us. That if we put our faith in him, we can be forgiven of all sin that we have and we can be brought back into relationship with our God. And as Jesus rose from the dead, he proved that his payment for our sins worked. And he foreshadowed what he bought for us, right? John 3, 16, what did it tell us? That we have eternal life. That doesn't mean that this fleshly body isn't going to die. But what it means is that those that are in Christ will be raised again to live for eternity with Jesus. And so as he was the first fruits of our resurrection, the first one to be raised from the dead, he is actually just the first of many. All of those that, that are in Christ, all of those that put their faith in, that believe in him, like John 3, 16 says, are going to raise as well and be with him for eternity. And this is the gospel, guys. This is, this, this is the good news that Jesus has said, I will make purification for your sins. I am the heir of all things, and I want you to be in my kingdom. What you say about Jesus 
Is he the savior of the world or not? That is going to affect eternity for you because guys, he has made a path for you to be with him forever. But if you reject that path, you are going to have to suffer the consequences of your sins yourself. He says, I will take them on you. I will take them on me. But if, if, you, if you will not come to me, then you're, you're going to be left to your sins, which is what? Separation and death. I implore you that you would see Jesus as so much more than just a good teacher, guys. If you see Jesus as a good teacher, he can help you a lot in this life and figuring out how to be wiser, how to be kinder, more compassionate. Oh, that's great. But guys, you're going to die. Like, like, like you're, you're, you're going to die. This, this world is passing away. This flesh is passing away. And if you trust in Jesus only as a good teacher, I pity you. I pity you because he's so much more than that, and he wants you to be with him for eternity. He's God in the flesh, and he's your savior. But you know, not only does that what you say about who Jesus is affect eternity, it affects everything in this life. Look at what Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul's saying, man, it's not about me anymore. I am controlled by the love of Christ. I don't even live for me anymore. I live for him. He says it another way here in Galatians. 220, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What you do in this life should be massively impacted by your faith in Jesus. It changes everything. It changes your priorities, right? Paul talked about the same guy who just wrote those passages I read for you, how he, he used to care about all, all these other things that used to be so important to him, but now he counts all that stuff as rubbish. It's trash in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It changes your desires. You, your, the, the Bible talks about not being conformed to the power of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so as you come to, to Jesus and you start to love him, he literally will start to transform your mind. Right? That's our prayer, is that, that we wouldn't be conformed to the power in this world, that we wouldn't want to rebel against God, that we wouldn't want to love sin and pursue all of that the way that the world does, but rather that we would be transformed, that we would start to see the world the way that he sees it and start to have desires that are in line with his perfect desires. This is a product of coming to know Jesus. He wants to do this work in your life. He wants to change you from loving death to loving life. He changes your values in that you are no longer king of your own life anymore. You are not the highest moral authority. And guys, we struggle with that, don't we? Like, we all think that we're moral people. We all think that we know right and wrong. We all think that we should be the one that judges what is sin, what's not sin, what's good, what's bad. And, and honestly, when you come to Jesus, you say, Lord, I'm laying my life down before you. I don't get to be king anymore. I want you to transform what I think is good and what is bad. And I want you to be the one that informs me that. You're the one that created everything. You're the ultimate judge. I want to see this life through your eyes. And so he transforms the way that we start to think about all of these different areas in our lives. Start, start, transforms the way that we interact with people. He changes the way you, you view people in that now you no longer view people from what you can get out of them, right? Which n none of us want to admit that we're as selfish as we are. But the reality is most of us only want to have relationships with people that benefit us. And, and look at the example that Jesus gives us. 
the one who didn't need anything. He's God, eternally existent. What, what, what can we give him that he doesn't already have? Yet he comes and pursues difficult people. Romans 5, 8 says that, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so he starts to seek out people that are difficult, that, that don't have really much to add to him. And, and he loves them selflessly rather than selfishly. These are all transformations that should be taking place in the life of a Christ follower. And guys, I'm not saying this all happens overnight. Some of this is a process, but I'm trying to help you realize that believing in the gospel affects everything for eternity, and it affects everything in this life. Who you say that Jesus is, is one of the most important, that's one of the most important questions you will ever answer, is, is who Jesus is. And on this stormy night in the boat, the disciples started to gain a lot more insight about who this man actually was that they were with. As they came to realize that Jesus is so powerful and so great, we see that, th that there's something very interesting about his presence and how it affects them. You see, when you're in the presence of somebody that's very, very powerful, it can be either comforting or it can be terrifying, right? I don't know how many Stranger fa uh, Things fans there are out there, um, but in Stranger Things, there's basically this girl that has superpowers uh, named Elle, and there's this one scene where, you know, she kind of, there's these nerdy kids that befriend her, and uh, these nerdy kids are getting bullied at school, and there's this, this scene where they end up running into their bullies, and the, the bullies are, are starting to try and uh, hurt them, intimidate them, and that kind of stuff, and Elle uh, starts using her superpowers to fight back against these bullies. And it, it's interesting to see the dynamic, right? Because f for the nerdy kids that she's friends with, she's a comforting presence, right? Like before, they, they were at the mercy of these bigger, stronger kids. But now, because Elle is with them, she's able to protect them. Yet for these, these bigger and stronger kids, all of a sudden, they're terrified, because they've never seen anything like this, and this girl is their enemy. And I, I, honestly, Jesus, we can view him in much the same way. His presence can either be very, very comforting or very, very terrifying. For the disciples, the nearness of Jesus was good for them, right? When Jesus called out to them, they were in a difficult spot. He says, take courage, don't be afraid, it's me. Right? What a, what a great thing that Jesus could say, don't be afraid, it's me. I, I love this verse, Psalm 73, 28. It says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. May we be people that can say that, that we have made God our refuge and that his nearness is our good. You see, Jesus invites you into his family. He wants to be a comforting presence for you. Listen to this invitation he gives in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the real Jesus. Loving, comforting, welcoming, protective, but the real Jesus, guys, he's also terrifying. I don't know anyone else that can walk on water, right? I don't know anyone else that can calm the sea and, and do all of the amazing things 
that Jesus can do. And my goodness, he would be a terrifying enemy. Revelation 19 shows us Jesus coming back actually to conquer his enemies. And this is the image we get of him in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that, it will, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe, and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, Jesus came to us the first time, humble, in a manger, born into a carpenter's family, taking on flesh, walking amongst us, proving the very fact of what he talked about, about how he is humble and his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and that he invites us to come to him. He comes the first time in peace. And guys, guess what? That extension of peace is still there. There is coming a time when Jesus is going to come again. And when he comes again, he's not going to be coming in a manger. He's not going to be coming born into a poor family. He's going to be coming riding on a white horse and a robe dipped in blood with many crowns on his head and a sword coming from his mouth to slay his enemies. There will come a time where he comes back in power and in judgment. And that he will come to tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. He is not the kind of enemy that you want to have. Praise God that he's made peace offer for us first. He says, come, come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, take my yoke upon you. Guys, he wants to make peace with you. He wants to be comforting to you. But if you continue to give him the stiff arm, I don't know when time's going to run out. I don't know when this is going to happen. I know it's going to happen. I don't know when. But there's a time coming that it will. And I pray that you'll be ready for that day. And that when Jesus comes back to slay his enemies, you will not be amongst them. But rather that you'll be one that's part of his conquering army. That you'll be one that gets to live in the kingdom that's ushered in. Where all sin and pain and death and crying and mourning is done away with. This is what he comes to offer. This is the real Jesus. So, as I close, I just want to ask, is the presence of the real Jesus, the real Jesus, not the one you made up in your mind, not the one our world likes to have, whatever, the one that is told about on the pages of Scripture, the one we read about in the Gospels today, the one that we read about in Revelation today, this real Jesus, is his presence comforting or terrifying? And will you come to him? Will, you be, will he be a terror to you or a comfort to you? Do you see him for true, who he truly is? That he is the son of God and that he is worthy of all of our worship. Guys, I hope that you come to see Jesus in all of his glory, all of his radiance, all of his goodness, all of his warmth, all of his love, and all of his power. It's my prayer for us as a church that we would just get more and more and more of a view of just who he really is. 
that we'd fall more and more in love with him, that we'd give him more and more of the worship that he's so worthy of. So we get a chance right now in song to have just a small expression of that, uh, but don't let it end here. You know, as we, as, we, as we sing the songs, great, lift up his name, praise him, but do it with your lives too. If you need prayer as we go into this uh, time of worship, there'll be people in the back with some prayer lanyards that would be happy to pray for you. Um, maybe you're someone that says, hey, I, I want to know how to even start a relationship with Jesus. Like, I'm just now getting more insight in the fact that he, he's more than who I thought he was. How, wh- what do I do? What's the next step? One of the people back there would love to talk with you. Maybe you know Jesus and you're pursuing him. And there's something else I said today where it's just like, man, I need to figure out how to reorient my time. I need to figure out how to, um, I, I need to be better about being active. I need to be better about being intentionally restful. Whatever it may be, whatever God may have laid on your heart, if you need prayer for that, there's people back there that would love to pray for you. All right, so I'm going to pray for us as a group and then we're going to enter into another time of musical worship. God, we love you and uh, we just thank you that you are worthy of all of our worship. You're so good. You do things that no one else can do, God. Not just driving out demons, not just healing. Uh, God, those are amazing things. Those are things that you gave the power even to your disciples to do. But Lord, there are other things that only you have done. And, and, And chief of those is Jesus that you took on flesh and that you died on the cross for us and you rose from the dead, you conquered sin and death. God, we know you're coming back. Jesus, we know you're returning uh, someday, and you're going to be returning with the the many crowns on your head that you deserve, even though we know that when you came the first time, you were mistreated and and beaten and abused and mocked. and your humility, you took that for us. But God, when you come back again, we know that that you're coming back in power and that you are are, are going to have your worship. You're going to have your praise. And Lord, we want to give it to you willingly right now. And God, we pray that you would empower us to be people that go and spread your fame, to be people that go and tell others about uh, the invitation that you make to come. All who are weary and heavy laden, come. Lord, may we take your yoke upon us, and may we invite others to go and, and, and to take it on them as well. You're worthy of our worship. We love you. We give it to you. And we pray all of this in your son's awesome name. Amen.